all these years, you know, I'm getting these dreams and we did all this good works. We got all these people off the street. We fed all these homeless people. And how could this happen? I'm excited to have you here again. I'm glad we're having this conversation. I know. I feel like I have my head more on my shoulders. Me too. Versus doing this with you when I was traveling and I was like, this just was not what it could have been. And so I'm I'm glad that that we're doing it again. Me so too. yeah. Well, to start giving people some context and to kick us off, what did spirituality look like for you as a child growing up in your teenage years? So growing up, um, I had a you know, a mom and a dad in a home. I have old, my older sister. But I did not grow up in a Christian home. Um, I had a friend take me to church at about eight years old, and I was baptized, and I loved it. Um, but my parents divorced, and we never went back. So, you know, it was a very dysfunctional home, a lot of neglect, a lot of uh, verbal and emotional abuse, and the turmoil between my parents really just divided everybody. So my sister ended up living with my dad and I ended up living with my mom <clears throat> and none of us were close. Mm -hmm. In fact, my dad just wrote me off altogether for about 10 years. And so it was just me and my mom in this little farmhouse. And um, she prided herself on being a witch and doing magic, black magic, voodoo, um, okay. stuff like that. I would come home from being out with friends and catch her in like a seance and I would you know, not participate, not want anything to do with her. There was something in me that obviously knew it was wrong. Mm -hmm. um, she tried to put spells on me, put her hands on me to do a spell. I mean, her pupils would be dilated. And I mean, she was all in and I would just tell her, get off me. At this time, I'm, I think I'm a Christian, but I'm not born again in any way. I'm deep trenched in sin and drug use and all that stuff. So, um, Anyway, at, at about the age of 17, I started having dreams and one would call them prophetic dreams. So, and it was just like about everyday life, you know, like um, for instance, I had a dream that there was a tornado in Kansas. And when I got up the next morning, I turned on the TV and there had been a tornado in Kansas. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it wasn't that often, but it was often enough to make me feel special and like, you know, oh, something is different. Like not everybody has these dreams. And that really continued. Those dreams continued um, up until just a few years ago. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Now, did those play a part in this group that you became involved with? Yes, a big part. And what did that look like? And then we'll get in for our listeners. We'll get into more of what this group looked like. But I want to start with how did you come into contact and how did this even come to be? So um, my husband had found this person. His name is Vincent on YouTube. And he was doing things in the name of Christianity that I had never seen before. And um I guess I'll abbreviate it a little bit here and then we'll get into a little bit more. So my husband got a hold of him and started talking to him every day. And um, I had bought him, my husband, a plane ticket to go see him out in Oakland, California. We live in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And once my husband came back, I started having dreams immediately about him out in Oakland and what a ministry would look like with him. And that was really the basis on why we got so involved so quickly, so heavily when we did. Okay. Yeah. So those were basically kind of guiding you. Yes. Decisions that you're and, and the more, the more time that passed, the more intense and more pre- frequent the dreams became. And they were holding a lot of weight, more weight than scripture. In fact, no, no one was even checking what scripture was saying. And according to the dreams, mm-hmm. um, and my dream would be one night and then like Vincent would have a dream a night or two later and it would feed off of the dream that I had just had. And we were like, Oh, it must be from God mm-hmm. because you know, good works are getting done. The homeless are getting fed and being sheltered. And what could be wrong with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, I mean, as you know, from us talking before and mm-hmm. other conversations I'm sure you've had with other people, that's just, it's not uncommon. Right. It's not common. And so I, I have similarities in my story of, yeah, I just assumed it was from God. Um, didn't really know what discernment was or what it looked like and how to practice it. And we can link video city series, a podcast series we recently did that, you know, gives people some more of a foundation for yeah. this, but it's, it can be really confusing and it does exactly what you said. It starts to take your attention away from something like the Bible. Yes. And so then all of a sudden it's like, okay, we're looking to the dreams for, for guidance and direction instead. And yeah, it can be a very slippery slope. So when you talk about, you know, helping the homeless and would you share a little more about what, what was Vincent doing and what was your involvement with him? Okay. So when I got home from work one day, my husband said, you have to watch this video. You got to see this guy. So I watched this video and it was a PBS special on him, an interview. I was probably like a 10 minute whole thing on him. And what he had done was he went homeless and started serving the homeless. And that's how he had lived for at that time, I think like nine or 10 years. Wow. And, um, at this point in my life, I had seen so much hypocrisy in Christians and Christian churches. And I was just like, okay, I'm going to do it alone because I don't want that. So when I saw the, the Vincent video, I was like, oh, this must be it. This is it. And to be honest with you, in that moment, when I saw him, obviously I didn't know him at the time because it's just surface level, shallow videography, you know, journalism. And so um, I was like, this is what's been missing. The giving, the sacrifice, the love. And I was born again in that instant. And I, people ask me, are you sure? Because, you know, it was, you know, it ended up being something, you know, that it didn't look like it was supposed to be. And I was like, I know for sure, because it, it drove me right to scripture and it turned me into a sponge for God's word and just seeking after Jesus just nonstop. And it was that, that eagerness to learn more about Christ that it propelled me and saved me in the long run out of that, just wanting to learn more about him. If that makes sense. Of course, Jesus saves us. And mm-hmm. you know what I mean? But um, so after that, when I started reading scripture on my own, I was like, the words of Jesus were just popping 
and like just piercing my soul. And um, so my husband got more involved with him talking every day. Like I said, I sent him to Oakland to see him. And when he came back um, in January, um, I started having those dreams. And so what Vincent was doing was being homeless, sacrificing everything. And so in turn, what was happening was we were learning more about him little by little as months were going on, sending him money, knowing that none of it was getting wasted or being stolen, like you see and read about in churches, mm -hmm. we were eager to give to the homeless. Um, now, we did learn at the time, in the very beginning, that he had had a wife and a child. And the first thing my husband asked him was, do you need Do you need help paying child support? And he was like, oh, no, my ex-wife, she doesn't ask for it. And we were like, okay. And, you know, when time went on, we realized that he had no relationship with his son. And a lot of things were left in the dark for us when we would ask questions. He would just be like, this is just the way it is. You know, this is just what happened. She left me. She left me. Mm -hmm. And what was I to do? follow Jesus, deny yourself, hate your mother and father, you know, pulling these pieces of scripture out mm -hmm. alone. And so, okay, so you turn a blind eye to a certain extent for the sake of good works. And um, that's what we were doing. And we obviously lived in our home. We had our son and Vincent was homeless. So, you know, there was a little bit of a, a guilt going on, like, should I even have a home? Should I even have a car? Mm -hmm. you know, walking everywhere at first, you know, we bought him a car so we could get, you know, more done in the ministry. And um, it just became, we just became entrenched. I started to, I started a homeless ministry here in St. Louis. Um, we went out once a week where Vincent was going out seven days a week and he maybe got like four hours of sleep a night. I mean, he was just nonstop. He was so zealous it was hard to like deny that he had a love for christ you know um certainly he's doing all of this stuff for christ right i mean at least it seemed and um so anyway um yeah go ahead oh it sounds like when you met him you were kind of in this, it sounds like a perfectly positioned. Yes. That's how I put it, would put it. You were perfectly positioned for an opportunity like this. It could have ended up being a really good one. Yep. Unfortunately, as we'll get into it, it did not. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think I'm, I'm giving anything away. People would assume you're, you're here. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I was a baby Christian. I knew nothing. I didn't have any discernment. Um, I didn't have a group of people telling me, Hey, this is kind of off. You know, um, I wasn't discipled. I was a rogue Christian and that is a really dangerous one mm -hmm. for, um, people who are preying on others and for others who are more vulnerable to people who are doing the searching for victims or whatever you want to call it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They're kind of just left out alone to the wolves. And that's exactly what happened. And I'm super passionate now about discipling new believers because I've seen it. I've seen it happen, not just to me, to other people where they have an early, you know, conversion and early on 
all of a sudden they're deep entrenched in, you know, some really serious false doctrine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We hear those stories a lot. Yeah. Where people were absolutely taken advantage of. And it's, it makes me so mad. I know. <laughs> me too. When I hear these stories, I'm like, this is, you just don't do this to people. Right. And it's also really disappointing when we find out someone was in a church, they were part of a congregation and there wasn't really much discipleship happening there. And mm -hmm. so it kind of got pulled in a different direction. And yeah. it's just, I have so much empathy and compassion and grace for people um, who've had experiences like this. It's, it's heartbreaking and it can be devastating. Yes. And yes. And I'm, I'm so thankful that you are here claiming Christianity on the other side of it, because that's also not always the story. I know. And I've seen that too. And it's, it's heartbreaking because, mm -hmm. um, when we, well, I'll let you go ahead. Cause I don't want to jump ahead to, you know, something that is in the future of the story. Sure. But yeah. So I want to pause one second just for anyone who's listening to this and they're new to be emboldened. They're like, who are these people? What are we doing? So Crystal is sharing her story. We do this series within our reclamation podcast um, seasons. We have people who want to come forward and they want to share, and we are honored to give them a platform to be able to do that. It can be really a wonderful experience for someone to get to share what happened to them, you know, to get to put words to it, to put that voice um, to what their experience has been. And it can be really, really healing and affirming for those of us who find similarities in our own stories to be like, okay, I feel less isolated. I feel less crazy. That's a common way that people explain it is like, I feel crazy when I tell my story or when I think about it, it's like nobody understands. And so hopefully as this helps to close that gap and let people know, no, there are people who understand. Um, and this is also way more prevalent than maybe someone thinks it is because it looks it can look different. We can have these different scenarios of what it looks like, but there's a lot of commonalities. There's these common denominators of what's going on. So for those of you who are new to be emboldened, we exist for those impacted by religious trauma by providing support for prevention of victimization and re-victimization. We desire to create this safe space for people to ask their questions and to begin to heal or to continue in their healing process. For anyone new to me, I'm Naomi. I'm the founder and executive director here at Be Emboldened. And you can find out more about who we are, the services we provide, and how you can become involved at BeEmboldened.com. So you explained to us kind of your background, how you then were positioned where just really unfortunate timing with meeting this leader, mm -hmm. um, was off kind of doing his own thing. And as you got to know him more, Reflecting back now, what would you what would you say would be the the main tenets of his leadership culture? Like, what was most valued by people who came alongside him? Suffering. Mm. The more you suffer, in in his theology, the more sanctified you're becoming, and the closer you are to Christ. And the more holy you look and are, if you're not suffering, um, you need to, you need to figure out how he would fast. Um, I've, I've watched him fast six days and six nights, no food, no water. And 
<laughs> when you witness something like that in someone else, it's just kind of mind blowing. Like only God could give that kind of strength. Right. And so he's inflicting this type of suffering on himself by going homeless. And um, obviously when you go homeless and don't have anywhere to bathe or wash your clothes or brush your teeth, you know, that's a, a form of suffering. But on top of that, there would be, you know, he would give up or he would say like the Holy Spirit told him to give up buying things for himself. So anything that he got or ate for himself, he got out of a trash can or was donated to him in some way. Mm -hmm. So I would say suffering is the main catalyst, the, the main tenant there, because when you watch him suffer, it makes you feel guilty. And then in turn kind of Oh, I guess I should be suffering too in that, uh, in that capacity, you know? Um, so what did that look like for you? Did you start to take on different forms of suffering as well? It was weird. So, you know, like I said before, like I owned a house, I had a son who had a husband <laughs> and a job and a car. Like I started to feel like, Oh, I guess I'm not supposed to have these things or how am I supposed to give this stuff up? If I have a child, I'm not going to sleep outside with my son, you know, in the streets. Um, and it was just, yeah, there was a, there was a heavy yoke upon me mm. in that regard. And he didn't buy anything for himself, but because money was kind of evil, but in the same sense, he wanted our money to further the mission. <laughs> right. So my husband was working his tail off. We own a small business mm. and he is just wrecking his brain over how he can get more and more money over to him and um, working himself, you know, into mental fatigue, physical fatigue. Um, it really did just put a heavy burden on us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the, it sounds like the motivator would be one of guilt. Yeah. Versus being one of, I'm so filled with my gratitude for the Lord and his blessings that I just have this overflow and I want to go pour out and I want to be generous. Yeah. Yeah. So um, when we came along, there was another man involved with him. There was two other guys, Alex and David, and David had went homeless already at this point. And um, it was the teachings of Vincent that, you know, create this idea of you better go homeless. You better not be caught in David's words. Don't be caught holding anything when the Lord returns, meaning don't own anything. Don't have any money in your bank account. Otherwise you're not, they believed in the rapture, a pre-tribulation rapture. So if you're caught holding anything of this world, you're not going. Wow. So that would completely just cut you out. Yes. You were not a true follower of Christ. Right. Yeah. And of course, I didn't come out until a little bit later. Um, mm -hmm. And he would never say it directly. It was always in like conversations, it would slip out. Or, you know, when we, you start to puzzle piece all these beliefs together, you start to think, well, if you're only going to heaven because you're homeless, I'm not homeless. So I guess I'm not going. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and he, his spin on grace was always, you know, it's in any cult or false teaching, it's Jesus plus something equals salvation. And that's what it was for him. 
and for anybody who followed him. It's got to be Jesus plus your good works. Mm-hmm. Right. And in this way, it's almost it's almost a, it's almost like a negative. It's like the removal of something. It's removal everything. Joy, materialism. There's a there is very much a Gnostic element mm-hmm. in the belief system. Mm-hmm. Because he would even say, like, how do we know, you know, the monks that like whip themselves mm-hmm. uh, or the priests? How do we know that doesn't work? That's what he would say. You know, suffer, suffer, suffer in order to get God's attention, in order to get answered prayers, and in order to get to heaven for that matter. Gosh, I'm just thinking of all the awful things this could lead to. (laughs) A lot. I'm going to tell you a lot. Mm -hmm. So So it was, you know, me, my husband, Vincent, and the two other guys. And then later on, two girls came along and, um, it ended up really, really bad. Mm-hmm. I would say that like one of the girls, I don't want to mention their names because I just love them so much. I don't want mm-hmm. you know to put them out there like that. But um, she went, she met David and he convinced her to go homeless like immediately. And he was like 15 years older than her. Mm-hmm. She had obviously no church background and she did. And it ended up in like a lot of abuse, a lot of abuse. He would um, limit how much food she ate. He would tell her she's worldly, worldly if she wanted to get a job or drive a car. Um, he, he, she saved up money, her, had some money saved, and he stole it from her and gave it to the poor. And so what had happened in turn was she ended up leaving about a year or two after we did. And she can't even look at the Bible. She can't even look at a homeless person without feeling anger and anxiety. I mean, there was so much spiritual abuse that I just don't know, like, how do, how do they come out of that? You know, we were fortunate enough to live far away enough to where the impact was a little less, but it's here. It's Mm -hmm. in the mind because it is biblical, biblically illiterate people who get caught up in this stuff. And that's what I was. I was biblically illiterate. There was no hermeneutics to my beliefs. There was no, it was just, oh, what does scripture say? You know, there was no, let's look at the whole picture here. Let's look at the context, you know, the very picking of the verses and then a religion created out of it. Right. Mm. And once we're removed from it, of course, looking back, it's like, oh, wow, this is easier to see now. Yeah. But it's not when we're in it. There's so much involved and there's so much emotion involved. And when we're talking, okay, now we're having dreams and these dreams are getting confirmed by someone else. And I'm talking to this person regularly. The influence, the amount of influence this person has in our lives becomes very, um, it just outweighs. We would have to have something to really counterbalance. And we don't necessarily, especially depending on what community looks like for us. And I don't mean that even necessarily as solid church community, although of course that's, that would be ideal, but even like friends, family, it just depends, you know, and what our relationships are with them. And, you know, we see college students oftentimes get involved in things because they're, they've been uprooted, you know, they're right. off on their own for the first time. And so they're figuring stuff out and it's like just prime time, you know, it's just, it's a great opportunity for someone to capitalize on the individual's life if they yeah. want to. And it's sick and it's awful and it yeah. happens. And so, yes, we want to, like you said, disciple so that we can equip people 
to recognize. Yeah. As far as, and I can hear in how you're sharing, you've learned so much. And mm. so that makes me smile because like all the language you're using and the, I'm like, oh, this girl's got it. Like this is not happening to her again. No, no. But, because... Yeah, go ahead. But we have to get there. You know, like we can say that we can laugh about it and it's like, but we don't know what we don't know. And until we know where someone shows us, I mean, there's only... I don't want to remove accountability. When I look back at my own story, I'm like, yeah, I could have asked more questions or I could have, but when there's people that come into our lives and there's some trust established, we tend to trust them. Yeah. And there was a lot of trust. It ended up being because he was up for so many hours a day when I would be getting up in the morning, he would just be going to bed. And so for the sake of Vincent, um, I would talk to him every morning to make sure he got into his camp and made it safe and didn't blow a tire or whatever. I don't know if you're familiar with Oakland um, streets, but they're just as bad as like a third world country. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, and it really became a problem. And my husband would say over and over in his head, well, it's for the greater good. He was basically sacrificing his wife for the greater good and allowing me to do this and not correcting me, you know, and, and sometimes he would be like, okay, no more. I can't take it anymore. I, I can't handle you talking to another man every morning. And I'm like, okay. And I would tell Vincent and be like, okay, we can't ca call each other anymore. Mm -hmm. And two days later, he'd be like, is Rick over it yet? So his needs came before anybody else's, mm -hmm. even though seemingly he looks all humble and meek and, you know, a certain way, you know, he doesn't look like he needs much because he's homeless and he doesn't, he wears the same clothes every day and whatever. But in reality, Vincent gets what he wants. And that's through manipulation. That's through deceit. That's through um, denial. That's through just not telling whole truths. And there was a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And I, of course, you don't find that out until at the, you know, the very end before you exit or even after you exit something like that, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, it took a toll on our marriage. And then there was two other couples as well. It took a toll on. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. And while this is going on with this belief of I have to suffer in order to be saved mm -hmm. and this suffering relates to work. So there's this combination because some people will talk about good works. Like there are plenty of groups out there that would say it's, it's works versus faith and grace. You know, they focus on the works. Um, so the works come first versus the works coming as an, as an outpouring, you know, an overflow. Mm -hmm. And so, but I don't often hear it related to works in which you are suffering. Yeah. That's less common. Now we've kind of like funneled it down more, you know, yeah. it's less prevalent. And so that sort of mentality, how did that impact your view of God during this season? It was a lot of confusion because I felt guilty. We established that there was guilt. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we have this little business that the Lord is really blessing. And I couldn't even, you know, not just enjoy it, but like share it with people. I mean, I was just 
giving it right to him. Whatever we were making was going right to him. And so it was, there was a lot of confusion because, you know, the love of money is the root of all evil. No, well, <laughs> let's put it in its context, right? So, I mean, that was the, the, the verse that they harped on all the time. And review of God was just, it was a little confusing. And with the mix of the dreams and stuff, you know, I read the whole New Testament all the way through, and then I got to work. And what happened was, you know, you forget certain things that you read one time, you know, mm -hmm. and um, I felt like God was like maybe a vengeful God. I got, I know in the mix of all this, I, I had, I know I had sinned earlier that day, one day. And I lost my temper or something. And I remember getting something out of the microwave and got it, getting a steam burn and, and saying, that's God punishing me for earlier today. And that was kind of like what was going on for about half of the time. Um, I will say that the Lord positioned me in a certain way. So we, we lived about 45 minutes from work. And every Tuesdays and Thursdays, I would go into work. And all I had was a radio to listen to. And so, I mean, there's podcasts, but I listened to the radio. There's a radio station called Bot Radio. And it's a Christian station that displays various um, sermons and teaching series. And if it wasn't for that, it was like, a, it was like another viewpoint. It wasn't just Vincent pounding me all the time with his theology. It, I was also getting R.C. Sproul. I was also getting... Um, Family Life Today and Focus on the Family were catalysts to me because um, our family seemingly was falling apart. But these men and women were going on these shows doing interviews saying, this is what a marriage looks like in Christ. This is what parenting looks like in Christ. And I'm thinking to myself, certainly you can't tell me these people aren't saved. And that's what he would do. Oh, they're not real Christians because they have X amount of money or whatever the you know, the excuse was, but I was like, there's no way you're going to tell me these people don't love Jesus. Right. And so if it wasn't really, if it wasn't for that, I don't know where I would have been because I wasn't being taught anything. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> R.C. Sproul is a brilliant teacher, it turns out. Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't for him and his teaching series and stuff, I really don't know where I would have been. So that really helped me shape my view of God um, and not being a total monster. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I could imagine. Yeah. I could imagine you thinking he's a monster. Yeah. I mean, that would follow. That would just logically make sense. I mean, Vincent would describe his walk with Christ as marching with a bayonet to his back. Ooh. Okay. Where's the joy in that? <laughs> and that's one of the fruit of the spirit. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. And it's just like, it was nothing but misery to him. And he would constantly say how he wanted to die. And I would tell him, I was like, look, you have a group of people now. You have about, you know, eight people looking at you as an example. Mm -hmm. And all you're saying is you want to die. So how do you think that the morale will go for the group if you keep doing this? Okay, yeah, you're right. But that was his every day view. I just want to die. Mm. Sad, really. Missing out on the love of Christ and the joy of being a Christian. Mm. 
I mean, I'm not saying we all need to walk around with, you know, clicking our heels all the time because that's just not life. Right. But we're saved. We're saved from the wrath of God, from the pits of hell, from eternity separated from God. Mm -hmm. We have some joy in that. Yeah. So what you said that this was a part of your catalyst was hearing this. Yeah. And contradict, you know, it was, it was contradictory theology. And so was there something you listened to that was that final moment or what happened where you're like, wait, this is, this is it. I'm stepping away. So there was a woman named Michelle that Vincent was caring for. She was a horribly sick schizophrenic, sicker than I've ever seen any mentally ill person in my life mm-hmm. or even heard of. Um, she was violent. She was nasty. She was unclean, just, you know, hygiene wise. And it was just really difficult. And he put all of his hope in her and really clung to her as his peak suffering in hopes that he would be taken from this earth if he took care of her. Okay. So anyway, so suffering would end. He yes. Would, his race would be run. And yeah, that's, that was the peak of his suffering. And um, that was going to be it for him, the end of his race. So he clung to this woman and gave her everything she wanted. And anyway, I had a dream one night that she needed to be medicated. She wasn't on any meds and she actually refused. So I had a dream one night that she took a drink to help her schizophrenia. So I woke up and I was like, certainly there's no drink for schizophrenia, but is there a liquid? And turns out there is. There's a shot that schizophrenics can take. So fast forward, she gets on the shot. It took about a year and a couple of stints in the psych ward, but she ended up getting on that shot. So when she was medicated, he started saying, he started acting real weird. Like you wouldn't, we would talk every day, multiple times a day. And he would say stuff like, you just sound like really down. What's wrong with you? And he was just like, you wouldn't understand. You just wouldn't understand. I'm like, what makes you so far advanced that I couldn't, you couldn't tell me what it was. Well, it turns out he did tell me what it was that he claimed that the Holy Spirit was telling him to give up more food. At this time, he was probably only eating canned tomatoes and bread. And and I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, it's just part of my walk. I have to advance. And I was like, hmm. because, because she's medicated? And he was like, yeah. Basically, it was, yeah, because she's medicated. That part of my suffering is now over. And I need to, I need to advance some other way. And I need to sacrifice more. And I was like, dude, here. You keep telling me I don't understand. And then you tell me this. And this is not, this is just not normal. And at this point, we got in touch with his wife, his Mm ex-wife and his preaching. We were doing um, monthly sermons. He was, he was doing the sermon and we were funding it and he would do the sermon. And then there would be food for the homeless afterwards. And I would stream them. I wouldn't stream them. I would have them. I paid a videographer to film them. And then I would post them on my YouTube page. Mm-hmm. And those sermons started getting real weird. Like 
I mean, I guess the veil was being revealed or, or being lifted because things were being revealed to me now. When I looked back at some of his like very first and second sermons that I posted, they were just as bad as the very last ones that I posted, you know? Mm-hmm. But I was like, you know, something's off. And he had preached something in one of his sermons saying, this is how we attain salvation. And I was like, we attain it? We have to keep it? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus says we're kept and no one can snatch us out of his hands. So how do we work our way to keep our salvation? If we could keep, if we earned it, we would lose it. If we, you know what I'm saying? Like, right. I don't understand. Like in my head, I'm thinking all these things, like what is going on? And so combined with the Michelle thing and like, he has to give up more food and the preaching and then talking to his ex-wife, there was a lot of things that had come to light that she shared that he was just downright a liar. He, he didn't graduate from high school. Like he said he did, or he, he led us to believe he did. Mm -hmm. Um, he, she didn't just leave him because she wasn't a Christian. She left him because he had homeless people crammed in their apartment with their son smoking crack. Oh my. Right. So it was in, he, the son had a heart surgery and he didn't show up for it. And I always thought it was because she moved back to her home state and Vincent was stuck in Oakland. Well, no, it was only about five minutes away from where he was staying. And so there was all these things that were like, he had led us to believe like he was some victim, you know, his wife just wasn't a believer. And so she left that wasn't the case at all. Mm. And so it was just all of these things combined. I was like, uh, and, and eventually the last few conversations we had, he said, I'm losing my salvation because I'm not doing enough good works. I had not been out there to visit him in a year. Um, oh, and so he said you were, you were losing your salvation. Yes, I was because I, I ha- I wasn't out there. So I would go out there like every three to four months and stay between three days and two weeks, mm-hmm. leaving my son behind, you know, with my husband. And I was actually convicted by the Lord. Like you're not doing your duties. You're mm-hmm. not, your first ministry is your home. And so I didn't go back. And so he got mad and said, you haven't been out here. You're losing your salvation. You don't understand what grace is. And I was like, you don't understand what grace is. I'm sorry, but you don't. And anyway, there was, um, we, we questioned a sermon of his and he said, I know for a fact that when I'm up there preaching, it is Jesus that speaks through me and I don't make mistakes. And I was like, okay. So at this point, I am in a church. The Lord had called me into a church about a year and a half after conversion. And at first I was just going to like the Bible studies and then going home. And then I started going to the services and actually befriending other Christians at a local church. They didn't know anything about my life, really. But um, I knew at this point that when someone said that, they don't make mistakes. And it's Jesus Christ speaking through them that that I needed me ask a pastor about that. So I did. And I said, (laughs) I said to the pastor, uh, what would you say when someone says this? And he was like, I would run as far as I could in the other direction. I was like, yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> so that was pretty much it. Um, he was just really critical of my life at that time. Um, I told him, I said, look, I have a son. When he said when he was getting mad that I wasn't coming out there to see him, I was like, I have a child. He's getting ready to start kindergarten. Like, I can't just leave. And he was like, it's not my fault. It's not my problem. You have a family. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you have one too, <laughs> you know, that you left. And I, um, that was it. I, I told, so at that point, my husband and I and the other group members and Vincent got on the phone on like a conference call. And it was pretty much just an accusatory match of you did this and you did that. And you, it was just so awful. And I was like, this is not a church. There's no love here. This is, he's not taking accountability or um, responsibility for anything. He can't be held accountable. He can't be touched because when you question him, he'll say, it's God speaking through me. How dare you question me? And then he has his followers saying, how dare you question him? He's been doing it longer than you. He's been a Christian longer than you. He's more educated than you. He speaks five languages. He's just, you know, a semester short of his PhD. He was untouchable. Hmm. So there was an exit right then. Yeah. How did it go after? Did you hear from him again? So, yeah, the next day he texted me and said, hey, we need to talk. I was like, no, because at this point he's gaslighting me and just uh, denying everything that he's saying. And I was like, no. Um, so anyway, we, we did end up talking and I was like, is he in the conversation that we had with that group call? He had mentioned that me and another girl, another woman, was in, we're, we were in rebellion to our husbands because we weren't submitting and the other two girls, the one, one girl was really having a hard time. And um, she ended up getting slapped by her husband, who was a follower. And the other girl who ended up going homeless right away, mm-hmm. he was put up on a pedestal and saying, she's more advanced than you are now, Crystal. She's more advanced than anybody here, any female here. Mm-hmm. And, um, so anyway, the, the conversation said, I said, do you really mean that? He said, yeah, I really meant that. And I was like, look, I'm going to tell you something. You have positioned yourself on a pedestal where people follow you and, um, you're leading them down a really dangerous path. And that was pretty much the last thing I said to him. And we hung up and he's like, so what now? And I said, I'll see you when I see you. I, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't want anything to do with you. You know, and, you know, after that, it was nothing but scrambled eggs in my brain, (laughs) to be honest with you, because it was just like all these years, you know, getting these dreams and we did all this good works. We got all these people off the street. We fed all these homeless people. And how could this happen? How is this real? And um, so it started a year long, pretty much unlearning everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of questions that come up afterwards. It feels surreal. Yeah. Oh my goodness. For like months afterwards, I couldn't pick up a Bible. I couldn't even, um, like think straight, like what about this and what about that? But that can't be true because the Bible says that like, you know, it was just like, but the Lord was so merciful because even in my, 
aversion to scripture at the time, he was revealing things to me anyway. So for instance, everything was chaotic in that cultish group. And I woke up one morning and Genesis 1 was in my head, just the whole creation story. And he just pressed on my heart, God, you know, that he's a, he's a God of order. He is a God of peace. He isn't a God of chaos and confusion. And that really put me at peace. You know, even though I had all these thoughts in my head, like that was confusion. That was chaotic, but God isn't. And if he isn't, and that was certainly that couldn't have been of God, even though it seemed like it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, there can be a push too for people to, it's like, you know, okay, you came out of this now get in your Bible every day and find a church and get involved in a life group and do all of these things. And it's like, I would read, <laughs> I would read like one verse in scripture and be like, and that'll last me three weeks. <laughs> yeah. that you just know what? My world. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like it's a, a grief. You it's you're grieving. Mm-hmm. You're grieving what you thought you knew. You're grieving the fact that you were wrong and you had to admit it. You're grieving the fact, at least for me, that I was sharing these same things with other people as fact. Right. And leading them down a path that potentially could have been destructive. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until about a year later that the Lord then addressed the dreams. Mm-hmm. At the time, um, right before the exit, there was a really hard dream to discern which again added to the confusion thought of everything, the chaos. And um, after we exited, I just prayed to the Lord, take away the dreams. They're too much for me. I can't handle them. Mm -hmm. It was getting to the point where I could pray for a dream and I would have one that night. And um, I said, Lord, just if they're not from you, take them away. And I hadn't, I did not have a dream for about three years. Mm -hmm. So then a year after that, I spent a lot of time alone in our, in our, we, we moved and we, I was painting the basement and I just got smacked with the dreams were idolatry and they had to go. Mm-hmm. And there was one particular dream that I had led my sister down, led my sister to believe was true. In turn, you know, had her. So praying for the dead was a big deal in the group. And the dream that I had about my mom was basically praying for her to, she, as you know, from earlier on in the interview, we know who she, what kind of person she was and what she was doing with her life. Mm-hmm. So, and she, she's gone. She's, she died in 2005. And so praying for her was something I wanted to do, not knowing any different. And so um, the dream basically was, if you do this, then this light will shine on her. And it was almost like, you know, she could potentially be saved. She could, you know, not be in total, utter darkness. Okay. And so I remember telling my sister, cause she asked, do you think you could pray for the dead or something like that? She must've heard something. And I was like, you know, this pastor said you can't. And I was like, well, I would say 
that you can't, except for that one dream that I had. And so it would, it was totally contradictory to scripture. So mm -hmm. in that moment, I, I actually texted my sister immediately and said, I, I, well, first I cried <laughs> and then I texted my sister and said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for all the things that I said that were wrong. And so of course she was like, Oh, Oh, don't worry about it. And oh, I understand. I'm sorry. You feel bad. And you know, all those things. But what if I said it to somebody and walked away and never saw that person again, you know, planted those, those seeds of error. And so there was just a lot of guilt, you know, in that, but. Well, and something I think is just so cool about your plan for this episode is, you know, there's, there's kind of rule of thumb out there that when say a pastor of a church has had a moral failure or they've done something, um, or something, you know, really incorrect has been said, it needs to be corrected. Whatever the correction is, it has to match the breadth and depth of the platform because everyone who's listened, you wanted to give your best effort for them to hear the correction. Right. Give the best effort for everyone to be like, oh, okay, yeah, I did happen to hear that before. Now I'm hearing this and that's important to do. And so that's, that's the reason or one of the reasons anyway, that you can have these, you know, bigger, more public apologies or, you know, things go public when it can be a warning, but it also can be if someone is, is changing their stance. Okay. We want everyone to, to hear that. And I know that your plan for this episode is to put it on that YouTube channel yeah. that you had created before where yeah. you were posting his sermons. And I think that is so beautiful and it, the effort to be as thorough as possible and to get a message out there of this was not biblically sound. Yeah. I used to support it and I was a proponent of it. And now I realize that it was unhealthy and it was harmful. And I'm going to put out there again to the same breadth and depth that I did before that, no, this is actually a problem. Yeah. And so I just, I'm just so impressed because you're the one who came to me and said, can I do this? Like, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all those sermons I posted, who knows? I'll be honest with you. When we left, I had people contacting me saying they wanted to leave their homes, sell their houses, leave their wives behind to go join him. And I'm like, look at what I did. Had I not put these things on YouTube, it wouldn't have been out there that much. It just wouldn't have. No one knew who he was. <clears throat> and so there was a documentary made about him by the videographer that was doing the monthly sermons. He had watched him. He was an atheist Jew watching Vincent live the way he did. And it was even convicting to him in a way. He's still not a believer. In fact, watching the whole thing fall apart was even worse, you know? Yeah, I'd imagine. So, um, had all that stuff, I was just, you know, over, overly zealous at the time. And I think the, the zealous nature of a new Christian is a good thing when directed in the right direction, in the right path. You cannot just go wild. Mm -hmm. that's why it's so that's why scripture says it. it's so important to be part of a local body of believers mm -hmm. you see it over and over again mm -hmm. so um i i have to 
I have to reach. I don't even know if I still have the same people on there anymore as far as like subscribers, but it has to be out there. They have to be warned. And he's convincing. Right. Oh, and I'm sure it's incredibly inspiring. Right. Yeah. I want to be like that. I want to live sacrificially for Christ. Mm -hmm. Who doesn't? Mm -hmm. If you really love him, you know? And then the question is, what does that really look like? Yeah. With sound doctrine. And I think we probably land somewhere different, especially when we look at motivations. Yeah. That were present. And, you know, the Lord calls us to do all do different things. If you're called to go live in a hut in Africa and serve and do missions there, then do that. Mm-hmm. If you're called to evangelize to the rich, then do that. Mm-hmm. But the poor took precedence over anybody else. Even the rich people, they were like, you know, don't worry about them. Don't worry about them. Mm-hmm. Well, they're still a soul. You know, and sharing the gospel was not a big deal anyway. It was just serving the physical body, mm-hmm. the preaching, because we asked him to. And it was not, it was not the forefront of the mission statement. It just wasn't. Mm-hmm. Which is really impactful to step back and think about. Yeah. That wasn't even the, the real purpose. I told him like, you know, to about two or three years into it, I was like, I was doing my, my, um, ministry in St. Louis. And I was just like, I'm handing bags of food to these homeless people. And I'm just taking off. I'm like, they don't know who I am. They don't know who I serve. I could be an atheist. I could be a Hindu. They don't even know. They don't, I'm just handing it over and they are, they're running, you know, I'm running off. Mm-hmm. And I say, like, I mean, I need to put like, I was convicted about it. And there's a lot of people out there on the streets that were, you know, also serving the poor that were, you know, from, just a normal secular community and what separated me from them according Mm -hmm. to the person nothing Mm -hmm. because i didn't share anything with them about christ and so when i shared it with the the guys at the time i was only the the only girl but um they were like oh no everybody knows jesus don't worry about that everybody knows i'm like no no they don't though so it just wasn't important the gospel wasn't important Mm -hmm. and it should be the most important thing in any ministry. Do what you're called to do. Don't do what someone else is doing. And that was the thing too. Like there was no uniqueness. Mm-hmm. David was really good with kids, surprisingly, because he had a really bad anger issue. <laughs> but when I brought it up to Vincent about, you know, I think that maybe David's doing something that he's not gifted in. Maybe he should be with kids somehow. Oh no, he said. Paul says, be like me. And I was like, are you serious? You want everyone to be like you. Mm-hmm. So when we erase our individuality in Christ, we just become what we're not supposed to be. Right. Right. We're not all parts of the body. We're not different parts of the body anymore. Coming together yeah. and unifying and creating this was really beautiful tapestry, honestly. Yeah. Like I, I learned um, in my upper 20s because I had some of that too. Um, some of that push of like, well, I'm supposed to be like that person or be like this person. Yeah. I think we all struggle with that when we're trying to figure it out. Um, but yeah, I remember realizing, oh no, this is good because I, I didn't, I wasn't, it wasn't that I didn't care, but I wasn't as passionate about families in other countries. I was really passionate about local people that I was running into. 
my husband was more passionate about, you know, overseas. And I'm like, well, this is great because everyone needs to get taken care of. Yeah. And so it all works together. And it's not a lack of love or care. It's just like, wow, this is what I'm really like fired up about. Mm-hmm. And you're fired up about this. Well, it's great. You know, let's support each other. And how do we do that? Yeah. And don't pass by a need just because you don't feel passionate. If you can serve that, fill that need and serve, do it anyway. Right. Because we know that that we're called to do that. Yeah. So it's, it just gets to be, it's, it's more complex, but in reality, it's, it's pretty simple. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. So how would you say at this point where you are now, this experience has impacted your faith? I mean, it's like night and day. <laughs> it really is. It's just like night and day. So for a while, it felt like, like at that, that year of unlearning and learning new things and about theology and false doctrine. After that, it felt like kind of a dry spell, you know, like I didn't, wasn't hearing from the Lord. I wasn't, um, feeling anything almost, I almost felt numb, mm-hmm. but because the gospel and scripture is now the most important and the dreams have been removed, the distractions are gone and I can just laser focus on Christ and, um, and know I'm serving him and not a man, mm-hmm. you know, there's no question now. Um, no walk is perfect. You know, no Christian walk is perfect. And, um, I just, there's sometimes where I still get like my breath is taken away about what the Lord, from what the Lord has done for me and removed me from this cult or cultish group, because what it did for me was realize that I had been manipulated my whole life. This, This wasn't, this was the end. This wasn't just, Oh, I was just manipulated in this particular moment. No, it was really, I had been manipulated my whole life and the Lord was just revealing everything to me. He's so gracious and so loving. And I, I don't have even the words to, you know, thank him or show gratitude or anything like that, because it's just, I'm speechless over, over it. Um, so the love of the Lord lives within me. <laughs> hmm yeah, it can, it can make us speechless. I yeah. can't leave us there. It's incredible. And that's that overflow. Yeah. Right? That's where it's like, goodness, I want to share this. I want other people to have this. Yeah. Because it's so incredible. And it's, it's this realization too, just really deeply inside of, I could never earn this. Right. There's no way. It's just not, I could check all the boxes and it's like, you just can't earn this. Right. It's that beyond, uh, so above and beyond gift that it's just, it doesn't make sense. There's no possible way that I, it could be justifiably mine. Right. And that's really what a relationship with Christ feels like. Yeah. yeah. And, and honestly, how dare us think that we could look at the blood of Christ wasn't in vain. He didn't shed it. So you could do more works, you know, mm. Um, it's precious and it's pure and it's perfect and it washes us clean Mm -hmm. and how dare anybody trample over it. So when you think about your little guy Mm -hmm. in 10 years from now, what is one word of caution you would want to give to him as a red flag to watch out for of babe, 
I don't want you to wind up in something similar to this. Here's the main thing that I want you to pay attention to. Accountability. Who, if you have a pastor, who are they accountable to? Mm. And are you accountable to anybody? Because that's important too. That is a fire answer. Ooh, I mean, there isn't a wrong answer, but oh, I love that. I literally got goosebumps when you said that. Yes, absolutely. Who are they accountable to? And if they aren't naturally accountable to someone, what are they setting up to yeah. hold themselves accountable? What are the, what's kind of infrastructure are they going to create so that yeah. they can't just run willy nilly and do whatever? Because here's the deal. Even if we're trying our best and we're well-intentioned, we can mess up Yeah, and there's grace for that. It's okay. But we want people who are going to point out those blind spots and we want leaders who want those blind spots to be pointed out in yeah. a loving way so that they can make that correction. So they can continue to grow and be sanctified, become more like Christ. We want people who want that. Those are the people we want to be under the authority of. Yeah. I mean, being a leader means being humble, being meek. I mean, you can't just put yourself up in this position and have everyone bow down to you. Like that is really dangerous. And if you don't, um, like you said, have a setup to where you're held accountable, that's exactly what will happen because it is human nature to want to worship something tangible, whether it be human, a golden calf, a picture, whatever it is, it's human nature. And you see it all throughout scripture. And so we're just not perfect. And you, when you would, can admit that and say, okay, for instance, I just became the library to my son's school. And I said, well, who's, who's in charge of like filtering through the books on, you know, what's being checked in and checked out. And she was like, well, you are. And I was like, so I get to pick the books and then I get to put them on the shelf. And she's like, yeah. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to set it up to where someone reads the books along with me. So I'm not the only one who says this is okay. You know, so mm -hmm. I don't want to not only just be the only one, uh, you know, responsible for it. I want someone to say, hey, yeah, that's a cool book. Or if I miss something, be like, oh, did you see that in that book? Because that's that's going to be a problem. Oh, no, I missed it. Thanks for checking. Mm -hmm. You know, that's important in any leadership position. So that's what I would tell him. Son, who are you accountable to? and then who's your pastor accountable to?